0: everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode.
1: In terms of travel seriously and its impact on my life. I think it's just been completely transformative. First of all, it changed me from being an introvert to someone who could confidently navigate different spaces. I don't care if I'm the only one who looks the way I do, but I'm open-minded to interact with other people because I've learned throughout my journeys that we have a lot more in common than what makes us different travel just means a lot to me beyond the sun. It's a chance to be open. It's a chance to learn about lots of different people. It's a big chance to learn about myself and be like, okay, you might think you're an introvert. You might think you're very shy, but you can get out of that. You can break character. You can become a different person and become better for it.
0: This is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. My guest today is Dells Ogun. She is an international career coach, lawyer, and location-independent entrepreneur. She helps high achievers pivot into financially rewarding and fulfilling careers that they love without risking their financial security, reputation, or starting from scratch. Dell's life, career, and business all revolve around world travel, which she credits for her transition from a retail employee making minimum wage to a multiple six figure international lawyer turned entrepreneur. After growing up between Nigeria and London, her decision to travel the world completely transformed her life and tripled her income in less than two years. Over the last decade, Dell's has chosen long, term basis in some of the world's most epic cities ranging from Paris to Dubai to Medellin, Colombia. In 2019, she left her legal career entirely to become a tech entrepreneur and built a minimum viable product from scratch in just 10 weeks. Dells also runs the Career Game Changer one-on-one coaching program, and she has helped hundreds of ambitious people make boss moves to transform their lives and careers using her proprietary nine to five transition plan. Dells, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Matt. It's nice to be here.
0: I am so excited to have you here. Let's just set the context. We are not in person today, unfortunately, doing this interview, and we're not even on the same continent. I am based in Washington, D.C., recording this right now in the US. And where are you?
1: I am in London, recording. <laughs>
0: Awesome. Well, I know that you grew up partially in London, and you also grew up partially in Nigeria. And I would love to just go way back and sort of start from the beginning and ask you about your upbringing, you know, in London, in Nigeria, how that impacted your identity and really how ultimately your passion and desire to travel came about.
1: Sure. So I was born in England, actually. My parents had lived in England for, I don't know, probably about 10 or so years before I was born. And Shortly after that, my dad got a great opportunity to move to Nigeria and set up like a branch of a bank he was working with in London. So I like to say that about seven months or so after I was born, I was shipped back to Nigeria. <laughs> so a lot of my formative years were spent being shuttled between London and Lagos in particular, which is where we lived. And I I really loved that. I looked forward to my summers in England and I was very, very happy to run back to the sun when it was winter time. So I like to say that from about the ages of, you know, from when I was born pretty much until I was around 12, 13. My life was pretty much spent shuffling between the two countries. So I'd go to school in Nigeria and then summer holidays, winter holidays, I would be back in England. And it wasn't until I finished secondary school that we then moved. Well, I specifically moved back to England and then my parents stayed behind. So In terms of my love for travel, I've always been that super nerdy, adventurous kid. I loved reading because I was an only child. So, reading books and things were a way for me to kind of play with other children who weren't physically in the room with me. So, I loved reading books like The Famous Five, watching documentaries like. National Geographic and Discovery Channel and seeing all these foreign and exotic lands and dreaming that one day I would be able to explore them. So as I got older, I just tried to navigate myself into spaces and opportunities that would give me the chance to go beyond Lagos and London to more I guess, far-flung places for me at the time, like, I don't know, Germany and Paris, where people didn't necessarily speak the language and it was all very exciting. So that's kind of how I ended up in travel, really.
0: That's amazing. Well, I went to Nigeria for my first time last year in 2019. I spent about a month in Lagos. I spent about three months in West Africa total. I went to Ghana and Senegal and the Ivory Coast and Nigeria. But Lagos was really the the center of that trip for me. It was really the p- one place that I wanted to go the most when I was planning the trip. Yeah. And in large part, to be honest, that was largely due to the music scene mm. there because I had been in East Africa the year before. I went to Uganda and Kenya and Tanzania and i was hanging out with i have some local friends that live there and they were taking me out to these local clubs in cities like kampala and the Afro beats that I was hearing was all stuff that I had never heard before. And the way that the clubs would move to these songs, I mean, it was like amazing. And so I'm using like the Shazam app on my phone to figure out who are these artists and, you know, what are all these songs? And I'm making these literally making these playlists like while I'm in the club. Right. And I look these artists up and most of them are from Nigeria. So I was like, I have got to go. To Nigeria. So I I literally like found people that I knew wanted to go to Nigeria as well. And we started planning this trip to Lagos last year and I have been talking about it ever since. But one of the things actually that I want to ask you about, because you have the London and the Lagos connection in terms of the music scene, is one of the things that I started subsequently learning about musically is that there is a huge Afrobeat scene in diaspora population in London as well. Yeah. And there's a yeah. huge amount of amazing music coming out of the UK, which is then also being played in the clubs back in West Africa and all this kind of stuff. So I was wondering if you could just share a little bit about that scene and how you've connected with that.
1: Oh my God, I love seeing it. And I guess to a certain extent, it's also when you're in the clubs in like lots of different places and they're playing Afro beats, you're like, this is my music. <laughs> you know, because... Growing up, it wasn't particularly cool in the UK, I guess, at the time to be listening to like Afrobeats. Many people didn't really know that as a genre of music. But I feel like somehow during my teens, we had lots of young Brits like me who kind of bridged the two cultures, so like London and Nigeria and who were taking pride in, you know, their heritage and also spending a lot of time in studios because it was at the time it was what the cool kids did. So you'd have people like Tiny Temper, Skepta, who are all of Nigerian heritage. You know, even if they weren't born there, they have parents who you, you can see straight away are proper, proper Nigerian. So it's been a great thing to, to witness. And there are so many collaborations now between those artists who I guess they were primarily raised in Lagos and now the British artists as well. So I think we're properly in the information age now. You can sample each other's music. You can collaborate properly. So I think that's how we've ended up where we are.
0: Yeah, it's really amazing to see. So let's continue talking about your travel journey, though, right? And maybe also bridge that a little bit with your career trajectory, because you've been able to merge your professional career and ultimately your entrepreneurial trajectory with your world travel. Can you talk a little bit about that journey?
1: Sure when I was starting out my career, it was very important for me. I don't know if this is the whole Nigerian parents breathing down your neck. You must be the best, um, like to work with some of the best global companies. And I fought my way tooth and nail to get, within those companies. And the benefit of that is that a lot of those types of organizations had offices across the world and they actually actively encouraged you to spend about six months or so abroad in any one of their international offices. You can imagine that some offices were a lot more competitive than the others. But for me, I was pretty open-minded. Like I said, as a kid, I was very adventurous. I really wanted to see the world. And one of my dreams is to book a, a flight around the world one day, which I still haven't done actually. So really trying to make sure that I had the grades make sure that I worked on my presentation, my interview skills and all of those things so that I could distinguish myself from the thousands of people who were trying to get into these same companies worked out quite well in the end. And I'm grateful that, you know, I was able to end up with those types of international companies, because it meant that I was able to then make requests as I got more senior to work in particular transactions that would allow me to spend more time in Paris, for example, or ask for a transfer to a different country. So that's essentially what I did.
0: And then what was your travel trajectory like when you started to leave London? And then it just seems you kind of continued to pick up steam and then you had more control over the places you were choosing to live and you got more location independence in your life. Can you talk a little bit about that journey and how this, the start of your living abroad and traveling, you know, how that sort of just snowballed for you and what the career development was like as you went further along that path?
1: Sure, I think picking up steam is really the right way to describe it because there was a time when I felt like I traveled a lot, but it actually wasn't the case. You know this was before I actually landed my proper big law position. I would go to Spain all the time as a broke you know university student with I don't know less than a hundred pounds in my pocket, and I would still somehow manage to have a good time. I would say my first professional experience was in Paris, where I initially started out. I had an offer with this law firm in England and I asked to take some time out because I couldn't guarantee where I'd ended up, where I would end up. So I figured, okay, let's go to Paris and see if I could be a babysitter. And I guess you heard that right. I had a a job at a law firm and I decided to delay that to be a babysitter in Paris so that I could spend time, you know, just (laughs) learning French, picking up some skills, I guess the language skills that I'd always wanted to have. And then I did that for around six months. I managed to worm my way into the, the Paris office of that particular law firm, build relationships. So when I got back to London and I was back in the law firm, it was just easy for me to kind of leverage that babysitting experience because a lot of people are like, why would you do that <laughs> to kind of pivot into other places? So that's how I ended up in Dubai. I leveraged my Paris experience to ask for work on Middle Eastern transactions. And I knew Dubai was tax-free. So I figured it was going to be a win-win situation, a win-win scenario, whichever way things worked out. So it's just been a case of being proactive for me, really.
0: And then how did you eventually decide that you wanted to make an entrepreneurial transition? Because I feel like there's a lot of people that may enjoy travel they may appreciate travel they may appreciate living abroad but they are much more comfortable staying at a job with a salary and a paycheck and they know that they're not entrepreneurs so for you what were the entrepreneurial tendencies and then how did you ultimately know that you wanted to leave the corporate world and do your own thing
1: So you've been to Lagos, I'm sure you'd have picked up on this uh, subconsciously, even if you didn't realize it. Nigeria is a nation of hustlers. So that might be a massive generalization, but this is one of the reasons why you'll find a lot of you know, even British born Nigerians sending their children back to Nigeria for even if it's just a year, because the energy and like the competitive vibe and the fact that you already know that a job is not going to be enough, like you kind of have to own the direction of your own career if you want to achieve a certain level of success. Is something that's ingrained in you from even like primary school, to be honest, because I'm not going to lie. I feel like I'm intrinsically lazy. (laughs) So before, while I was a teenager, I was thinking, okay, this entrepreneur thing seems cool. My mom was an entrepreneur, but I was like, oh, it feels like a lot of hard work. I (laughs) would rather get a job with a company that pays me really, really well so that I don't have to stress about things like getting clients or having my own building, you know, just in the traditional sense. But then finally, when I ended up with those big companies, I realized that as much as I liked the work I was doing, a lot of my personal time was no longer mine. So it wasn't unusual for me to do like all-nighters, work for 24 hours straight. And actually several times I'd worked for 48 hours straight. So you start to think, if I can work this hard for someone else, then I totally can do that for myself. And at this point, as I you know, begun to travel as I'd read a lot more, I realized actually I have so many interests and it would be a shame for me not to actually leverage them into a business of my own and at the very least a side hustle. So that's essentially what inspired me to decide to take a break from the corporate world because I haven't fully left. Because somehow I feel like I miss it. You know, I miss like the collaborative nature of going into an office every day. It might just be the pandemic speaking, to be honest. But (laughs) that's basically the journey that I've been on for the past few years and deciding to leave corporate space in the intense way that I was doing it to build my own thing and work in the corporate world on my own terms as a consultant.
0: Got it. Can you talk a little bit about that transition, though? Because I feel like especially with someone that like you, that has a high paying job in a law firm making multiple six figures, that can be very seductive and it can really keep people there. Right. And I was wondering if you can just talk a little bit about how you made that transition and, and talk a little bit about the logistics of, you know, the decision, but then How did you actually build things up and then make the leap to transition to your optimal career and lifestyle balance?
1: Let's put it this way. I don't know any corporate lawyer who's not fantasized about at least just taking a sabbatical from it all for a year, because it's a very, very intense environment. And you get to a point where you recognize the opportunity cost of you earning too much money is sacrificing a lot of your personal life. And again, I went from earning around £3.60 an hour working at McDonald's to earning multiple six figures that, you know, way more than I ever could have imagined when I was going into the corporate space and probably more than my parents at the time, which I was so grateful for and very, very happy with. But at the same time, I realized that I just I felt like I was losing myself to a certain extent and I wasn't really indulging in all the things that I wanted to. So I liked my job. I liked the people that I worked with. But as with anything, too much of everything gets to a point where you've just, you need a break. It's like diminishing returns. So as I got more senior, I realized okay. Like this money is great. It's hitting your account every month, but I barely have time to spend it. And I know that this sounds like a proper first world problem, but it really was. And personally, almost like dating was impossible because I pretty much lived in the office. So I figured it's now or never. So I decided, I think about three years into it to start actively doing something about it. Rather than being one of those people who complained and moaned about things and dreamt about Fridays every every Monday, I started putting money aside as my emergency fund and also building up a fund that you know some people in the law firm call the FU fund. So if anything ever happens, you knew that, okay, you're financially secure for at least a year or so. And, you know, I think that this is something that everyone should do, regardless of how happy you are in your current job, because, you know, we've just had a pandemic hit and a recession can happen pretty much at any time. So it's always good in any case to have that. But something that helped me the most was really working on my mindset actively because it got to a point where it felt like I was just over analyzing, overthinking everything. And I wasn't actually being brave enough to to make that leap. A big part of my identity was tied to being a lawyer and I didn't even realize it. So really working on myself to know that there's way more to me than this lawyer. There's way more to me than, you know, how many contracts I can deliver, how big the deals I'm working on are. And there's so much value that I can give to the world in other spaces. Just kind of working on that mentality, really, really helped. And taking the focus away from the things that could go wrong to what I had to gain and what could go right made the prospect of leaving law a lot more exciting. So it was a slow process, but I finally ended up there.
0: Well, I wanted to ask you in terms of your particular story then, once you had your mindset correct, what was your process for building up on the side? And then when did you ultimately know that you were at the right place and make the leap? Like, how did the actual leap and transition occur for you?
1: So I had a whole number of interests. I've always been very big into tech and learning about that space, even though I had no desire to be a coder or anything like that. Also very interested in in e-commerce. And I find, you know, entrepreneurs like you and lots of other people in that space very inspiring. As I mentioned, when I was younger, I was terrified about the prospect of not having a safety net and being the one that built a company and doing everything on my own. You know, that was a naive perspective I had at the time. And um, so I decided, OK, let's move beyond the theory and the analysis paralysis and try and look for some examples of people that I could kind of follow their lead, you know, and move slowly. So even before I left the law firm, I had been dipping my toes into like e-commerce and I actually made a trip to China to meet with some companies that I was planning on doing a whole drop shipping enterprise with. And I just found that even just doing that, like merely taking steps, even though I hadn't fully decided that I was going to leave or this was a particular business venture that I was going to pursue just was really invigorating. And I was able to look forward to like my salary every month, not just from the perspective of money hitting my account, but money that I could use to invest into this future business, money that I could use to invest into myself. And I basically followed this process for around six months. And I felt like the more action I was taking, the clearer my path was becoming. And essentially that's where I finally ended up deciding to turn one of my travel based ideas into a business by learning how to code, not because I wanted to develop the app itself, but just because I wanted to understand the tech space at the same time as I was building this potential technology business.
0: I feel like there's a lot of people this year, especially, right, in the pandemic experience, especially, who are really starting to think about life transitions, right, for any number of reasons. There's more time to reflect that you're not entirely happy with your job in your life, or maybe there's a realization of how precarious your current job may be, you know, in the context of the pandemic and everything else. And I think a lot of people are really starting to rethink their life direction right now. So, what tips? Dels, do you have for folks right now in terms of thinking about the mindset and developing the confidence that they need to reinvent themselves? What should their mindset be to start approaching that process?
1: I think the first step is it's, it's different for everyone. But in my experience, what I found is being curious about yourself really, really helps because a lot of us go through each day in autopilot, especially people who work in corporate. It's, you know, the nine to five grind. You wake up, get up, go to the train station, get on the tube, get to work, sit at your desk, work for hours, go home. And then the cycle repeats. And sometimes you feel this nagging urge to do something different, but you don't know what that is. And it just feels like an irritation. And sometimes people are like, okay, I must get off social media because maybe I'm comparing myself to other people. And I think that if that works for you, then certainly do that. But if you're going to shut off all the noise, I think to a certain extent, you shouldn't completely shut off the noise in your head because behind that noise is a lot of wisdom. And I know that that was certainly the case for me because I just had all of these ideas and I felt like I was getting overwhelmed. I felt like I was being ungrateful by wanting to leave you know, a great opportunity that I'd worked so hard for. And I knew that many people would want to be in that position. But once I decided to be curious about myself and really explore what it is I wanted, why I was feeling the way that I was and what that could mean if I basically took the leap. And yes, you know, it is scary. It is scary to leave your comfort zone, but there's usually something better on the other side, and even if things don't work out the way that you expect it to, it's always going to be a learning experience. And I say this as someone who is still consulting and working with some of you know, the best law firms and banks in the world. And now you find that a lot of the leaders there say that for them, it's a lot more exciting to hire and work with people who have lived other experiences than just a traditional linear career path. And, you know, this is why I say to people, especially in the corporate space, like if you are feeling uncertain right now, this is the time to take a moment and really go back into yourself and try and cut through the noise and figure out what it is that your heart is really telling you to do. And then slowly but surely, the path will illuminate itself.
0: One of the things that you talk about a lot, Dells, is the concept of recession proofing your career, which really what you mean by that is recession proofing yourself. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how to do that.
1: So, recession proofing is something that I learned 10 years ago when I was graduating um, in the middle of the last Great Recession. And gosh, did I just think myself? <laughs> Anyway, and the point is just, again, not just relying on a particular job because, you know, a lot of the time when the economy is going through a downturn, people lose their jobs. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't good at their jobs. It's usually just economics, you know, and the demands of the shareholders and making sure that those companies still remain profitable. But I found that many people say, if they've worked in a job for a while, just get a bit lax in those roles without thinking of the worst case scenarios and how they could prepare. And recession proofing is basically a concept that says that you have to continuously work on your career and your personal development, regardless of the state of the market, whether it's good or whether it's bad. And one of the best ways to do that is to constantly work on upskilling yourself. And this could be, you know, learning a new skill, especially right now, you know, online courses are such a big deal. And there's so many ways that you can improve your value and your offering by learning new things. But then beyond that as well, again, it's also a process of working on your mindset as well. So if you're the type of person who finds that when the market is down, you get flustered and nervous and really concerned about whether you have a job tomorrow, if you're working on your mindset and being in the flow and just being calm, then it allows you to see that, okay, even if everything is going to shit, there's always opportunities. And if you have been prepared, by upskilling, for example, you will be recession proof because it will be easier for you to either pivot into a new industry where you can bring along your transferable skills, or you can set up your own gig and finally have that financial freedom and independence that perhaps you've always wanted.
0: I think one of the other concepts that you talk about that dovetails with that is personal brand building. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about personal brand building and your tips for why that's important and how to do it effectively.
1: So in my experience, personal branding is very, very important. It's one of the ways that you can distinguish yourself from other people in a very, very competitive market. So whether that's you know as an employee or even as a business owner, because there is a lot of duplicity in the service offerings, In you know people's CVs, for example, people's resumes. I mean, on the face of it, a lawyer is a lawyer, right? So, what makes Ivy League graduate different from the other graduate? It's just you know beyond the the resume, beyond the deals. It's actually who that person is, how they present themselves, and what they are bringing to the table that could be an unusual asset to the company. So, a core part of personal branding for me is really again knowing yourself knowing what you want to do and taking ownership of that. So, you know, one of the things that I noticed when I was working in the law firms is that, you know, typically law firms are very traditional, but in the course of my career, they've evolved into these quite casual places, you know, so you could own the fact that you are, a badass hipster (laughs) in these law firms. And, you know, clients found that really interesting and engaging because if you think about a lot of the big tech companies, for example, their CEOs and their owners, people like Elon Musk, right, are pretty chilled out people. I don't think I've ever seen Elon in a suit. So if your personal brand is the fact that you know, you are a badass lawyer, really good at what you do, but on the weekends you like to go to triathlons, you like doing ultra marathons and things like that, then definitely own that because you'll be surprised about who that attracts and why people will find that interesting. And I think sometimes people shy away from showing their personalities in some of these spaces, but actually I I find that that's more of an asset than a disadvantage.
0: I know that you also work with a whole variety of different types of people on career transitions. And one of the things I think is really cool about your work is that not everybody wants the same thing. Right, So some people might want to quit their job and become an entrepreneur. Other people just want to land a dream job that they love better and they want to go land a job that's abroad in another country so they can live in another exciting place and still work for either the same company or maybe a different company. Maybe their dream job is abroad. Can you talk a little bit about that? And let's just say, you know, for the people that are not entrepreneurs that just are looking to land their dream job and live abroad somewhere as an expat in a super exciting country... What are the tips that you have for them on on how to begin that process?
1: I think one of the most important things is to recognize, especially if you're looking for a job as opposed to setting up your own thing, is that you have to be super proactive if you're looking for work abroad, because on the face of it, submitting applications on places like LinkedIn and Glassdoor might not work out as quickly or as efficiently as you would hope. Because if you think about it, if you're a hiring manager and a good CV lands or somehow slips through your inbox and it says this person wants to get a job with your company, but they're based in another country, you start to think, oh, what does this mean? Okay, this guy has a great CV, but what is the incentive? Like, why should I hire this person and go through the whole admin of trying to get them a visa or whatever? So you have to be very proactive and think about how you're going to present yourself to these people. And that's why, again, your personal branding is very, very important because if you know how to sell the fact that, you know, yes, you're from a different country, but you can bring that international experience to this particular company that you're going after, then that's already setting you up in a good stand. And also another thing to recognize is that 80% of jobs are not advertised. I think that's the statistic that I don't remember where I read it, but it's kind of a almost near universal type statistic that... A lot of the best jobs are actually filled before they get anywhere near the online job board. So you have to be super proactive. And now it's pretty easy to do that. I have some clients who are able to find jobs just by posting in Facebook groups and introducing themselves and networking, not being that annoying person asking everyone for a job, but just, you know, being curious and making your presence known, really. So I think that if you're looking for a job from a different country, you just have to be prepared to put in the work. It's not impossible. And regardless of the fact that, yes, you know, it is a difficult market right now, there's people still landing pretty good gigs. You just have to be consistent with it.
0: Yeah. And I know you also work, obviously, as well with a lot of people that are transitioning out of the corporate world and becoming entrepreneurs they want to become digital nomads and travel the world and have that lifestyle and you help people to do that successfully can you talk a little bit about your career game changer coaching program and your 9 to 5 transition plan and how you walk people through that process what is it like to work with you and what is the process like for somebody to you know themselves uh, develop the plan for that transition
1: sure so the career game changer program is I guess name that because it's almost a way of completely switching the way you think about your career, defining what it is that you truly want, and then getting the confidence to go for it properly. So, the way it works is I typically work with people on a one to one basis. And the first thing that we do is to really clarify why they feel this itch, because I find that, you know, for myself and for a lot of the people that I've worked with, especially those from a corporate background, it's like you have this persistent itch And it's almost like there's a bee buzzing in your ear and you just, you actively try and ignore it Until the bee just buzzes too loud and you have to do something about it. So it's really just about really identifying your why, like why is it that you want to leave your job, especially if you have a great job, you know, and if you have family responsibilities and stuff, it's important for you to know why you want to make this change so that you will remain fully committed to it and have no regrets. And the second thing we move on to is the what. So some people actually think that, oh, yes, I want to start my own business um, instead of, you know, getting a different role and maybe transitioning to a different industry. And it's almost like it's a process of uncovering the true reason behind why they want to make that pivot. And it might be that, you know, before you start your own business, it's actually important for you to maybe get mentorship by someone in the space that you want to transition into, try and figure out how to build networks and things like that. It's a journey that we go through in around six to eight weeks. And by the end of it, people have usually confirmed whether they want to get a different job or whether they want to actually start their own business. If it's an entrepreneurial endeavor that they're looking to do, then their offer is super defined. The audience that they're targeting is clear and they're basically going in ready to launch themselves into this new world of work. So that's what we do over the course of six to eight weeks in my career game changer program. As for the nine to five transition plan, that's for people who are kind of like me, (laughs) very risk averse and you're still working in your nine to five and you're trying to think, okay, I know that I want to switch my jobs but and I want to leave what I'm doing, but I'm not ready to do it just yet. And it's basically... A process where you follow this plan that tells you, okay, like this is where you are and this is where you want to be. And based on people who've done this in the past, these are the steps that you need to take. So for example, if you need to build up your emergency fund, if you need to start creating a network, if you need to start working on your business plan, if you need to start learning a skill and, you know, building up your offering, this.
0: without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation. If that sounds interesting to you, to learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now back to the episode.
1: It kind of takes you through the journey from step one to ultimately where you want to be.
0: That's awesome. And I love that you have done all of these things yourself. You've changed jobs. You've negotiated with your company to move you abroad. You've gotten new jobs. And then you've left the corporate world. You've started an entrepreneurial venture. You've done the world travel digital nomad thing and all of that. So you're positioned to help people identify the best thing for them and then develop that customized plan. So I think that's a super, super unique value proposition that you have. I want to ask you also more just about your travel experiences, right? That was your passion. That was your love. And you continued to make these career moves personally to give you more and more freedom to be able to go and have more control over where you travel, when you travel, how long you stay and where you go. And I want to just ask if you could share a little bit about your travel journey and maybe just starting with any of the sort of the most memorable moments or travel experiences that come to mind that really impacted you?
1: In terms of the travel experiences that have really made an impact, I have to go back to Paris again, because it was one of my first major experiences of being somewhere where I stood out, not just because of, you know, what I looked like, but also the fact that I didn't speak the language. And I had gone to Paris, you know, with so many warnings from people about how unfriendly French people were and, you know, all of these stereotypes and how I would find it difficult. But ironically, when I got there, I was just super excited to just be and live in this beautiful city that I'd read about. And, you know, my perspective was just like, I'm going to make the most of this. Like I don't have any money anyway. So let's see, let's create an adventure where I can have the best time on the smallest budget possible. And I think that having that perspective really helps because it meant that I was curious and I wasn't as like, I don't know, I don't really know how to explain it, but I felt like I was curious about everything and everyone. And even when people were rude to me, I found it entertaining and I would laugh and not take things personally. And people would be curious about that. Like this crazy English girl, It's just away, giggling away in the corner in a cafe. And it was just such a delightful thing. Um, It was a delightful experience. It was one of the first places that I experienced like secondhand vintage shoppings because like in Nigeria, that's not really a thing. And even if it is, it's very much about you're buying secondhand clothes, as they call it, or vin- you know, we, we don't say vintage clothes in Lagos, but you're buying secondhand clothes typically because you can't really afford something else. And quite frankly, when I lived in Paris, I couldn't afford to splurge, you know, on the Champs-Elysees. So I discovered like the Marais and vintage shops, the joy of finding Gucci belts for five euros that are from like the 1960s <laughs> and just... You know, like just being open minded. It was just such an adventure. And I I really, really enjoyed it. And now when people say to me, oh, like French people are so rude. I'm like, yeah, they are rude. But at the same time, they're really funny and they're really nice. I had a great experience when I lived there. And I think that kind of travel experience has been pretty consistent for me you know, again, the joy of going to New York for the first time and people just loving the, the English accent, even though my accent is a lot more international now. But I just love that. I, I think in New York, I just kept getting free shit Every time I said anything, she's like Americans like, oh my god, you're from London. I absolutely love that. Like, no one cares about your accent in England. But first of all, they can't reconcile. Well, not in the New York, obviously, but in certain spaces, they can't reconcile the fact that you know I'm a black girl that lives in London. They're like, What? I'm referring to places like I don't know, very random villages and stuff, maybe in Indonesia, where people have asked me, Oh. Where are you from? And then I, I I deliberately mess with them by saying, oh, I'm from London. Like, what? But you're black. I'm like,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I want to actually use that as a transition because you have actually put out some really good content on your YouTube channel about traveling while black. And I want to ask you if you can share any Tips for Black travelers in particular who are maybe at the earlier stage of their world travel journey?
1: Yeah, I think things have changed a lot now in relation to Black people being a lot more open to travel. I think, first of all, we probably have always been inclined to travel, but you've been worried about how people would perceive you, whether people were racist and whether people would be mean because of the color of your skin. And that is certainly the case in many destinations. However, in my experience, I have had more really good experiences than bad ones. So my main piece of advice to someone who, a black person who's traveling maybe for the first time or is doing solo travel for the first time and is worried about having to navigate those types of concerns alone is to recognize that you know, a lot of the time people are just curious and that's okay. You do have to be careful about your safety in certain places, but, you know, on the whole, if you research your destinations, you should go for it and just not be worried about what other people think. If people are staring at you, then, you know, it's probably because they haven't seen that many black people. Because again, if you had a white guy on his own go to the village where I was from, where my family are from in Nigeria, they would get scared at, and you'd have lots of kids running after them and like <laughs> wanting to touch them, which is the experience I had in Argentina. It's the experience I've had in Bali. In fact, in in Bali on the rice terraces one morning, like this family made me sign an autograph or something. I don't know who they thought I was, but I signed it with flair and the kid was absolutely delighted. So <laughs> I think there's more of those types of opportunities those types of experiences than the negative ones. I have had you know, those situations where certain parts of Spain, for example, or Italy, people assume that you're a prostitute. And this is where I say that it's very, very important to research where you're going. And there are some places where, especially if you're traveling alone, don't even bother going as a solo female black traveler because pretty much you are going to be harassed and it's just not worth it. So I think researching your destinations is very important. Being open-minded, not taking things too personally and just realizing that people are curious and actually sometimes just realizing that people are rude because it's part of the culture and not necessarily because of you. I know that that happened to me. Yeah, so the first time I went to Prague, for example, the first day I kept going into restaurants And asking for a reservation because I went to to Prague on a business trip. So I was alone until my meeting. So I figured I'd go for lunch. And every restaurant I walked up to, like the waiters were so rude. They just ignored me. And I was really upset. So I I remember Googling at the time, like, people in Prague racist. And one of the first things that came up was that, you know, it's not really about racism. Most of the time they're not. It's just more a relic of communism where you didn't really have much of a choice in your restaurant. So the concept of customer service was not a thing. If you have a shit experience in one restaurant, you go next door, you have a shit experience. You still have to eat. So they don't really bother that much about being overly friendly or the whole American, hi, welcome. Like, no. (laughs) But ironically, that's also the same country where I had one of the best travel experiences ever because I love doing like walking tours. And I think that evening I did an evening tour and I spoke to our tour guide and I said, Hey, like I had this experience today that made me feel really bad. You know, like I kept going to restaurants, people would ignore me or just be very gruff when they were speaking to me. And she repeated the same thing I'd read an article. She said, look, you have to realize that The older generation have had a very, very difficult time. So if you were born in Prague and you'd lived in the same house over the past 100 years, I think you would have been part of five different countries. So they've had a very tough life. And the whole tourism and, you know, young, excited travelers is still an unusual thing. So they're not as chirpy as we're used to seeing. And I think that that was a big education moment for me because I realized that, look, you can't take everything personally. You also have to be very open-minded and recognize that people's experiences are probably going to be significantly different from where you're coming from.
0: So Delza, at this point in your life, reflecting back on all of it, your entire life of travel, the good, the bad, all of the new experiences, everything, how would you sort of summarize how travel overall has impacted you? Why do you choose to travel? What does travel mean to you?
1: Travel, first of all, for me, means an opportunity to get back in the sun. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, my favorite things that my dad would always say is just like, you really could not pay that man to come back to England in the winter. He absolutely hated the winter. And I'm I'm the same. I feel like, yes, I'm a product of two different countries, but I'm very much a tropical girl. So I take every opportunity that I can to travel. So you can imagine right now being in London on a cold gray day is a bit of a challenge, but I'm grateful to be here. That said, in terms of travel seriously and its impact on my life, I think it's just been completely transformative. I was the only child that like, super nerd, the the girl who always dreamt of traveling and exploring the world, but didn't get to do that until a little bit later. And I think that I learned a lot about myself when I began my travel adventures. First of all, it changed me from being an introvert to someone who could confidently navigate different spaces. I don't care if I'm the only one who looks the way I do but I'm open-minded to interact with other people because I've learned throughout my journeys that we have a lot more in common than what makes us different. And one of my favorite things about living in the Middle East, especially a country like um, a city like Dubai that, you know, I think about 90% of the population is expat. is just that you are exposed to lots of different cultures like every single day. Initially, I thought that went without saying because I'm a Londoner, but there's nothing like living in a place where the locals are the minority to broaden your horizon and also introduce you to so many things that I never would have done if I had lived in London. So for example, when I lived here, if you ever asked me to go camping on the weekend, I'd look at you like you were crazy because that meant being in a tent being in somewhere that was muddy and possibly rainy. And I just like, no, I was a proper city girl when I lived in London. Now you can tell me, Dells, let's go camping. And I'm all over it because living in Dubai exposed me to things like going camping in the desert, going camping, you know, by the beach and waking up and swimming with dolphins, going to hike up mountains, seeing my first fossils and just, you know, all of those types of experiences that I wouldn't have had if I decided to just be narrow-minded and continue to stay in the same place that I'd grown up. Travel just means a lot to me beyond the sun. It's a chance to be open. It's a chance to learn about lots of different people. It's a big chance to learn about myself and be like, okay, you might think you're an introvert. You might think you're very shy, but you can get out of that. You can break character. You can become a different person and become better for it.
0: That's awesome. I want to ask you one more question before we move into the lightning round. And I just want to ask, it's more of a tactical question, I think, as an entrepreneur, in terms of how you optimize your productivity. What does your day structure look like? Do you have morning routines? All of that. And also, along with that, I want to ask how you manage stress as an entrepreneur because everybody that's an entrepreneur knows that that entrepreneurial roller coaster goes up and boy, does it go down. And I want to just ask your techniques for how you manage and mitigate stress as an entrepreneur.
1: Yes. So, stress management is something that I had to learn when I was working full time in law because you don't do 48 hour shifts in the office without sleep, without going a bit cuckoo. So one of the things that I picked up during that time of, you know, really intense moments where you had to get deals closed and like had to deal with demanding clients and things not going according to plan was to take time out and find that time, however you can manage to get it. So this was when I got introduced to meditation and that helped me really like calm myself down because my brain is always in overdrive. Like even today, this afternoon, I tried to take an afternoon nap and it was just impossible. And meditation allowed me to kind of get to a place where I accepted that because it's like you're sitting with those thoughts and you're looking at them And it's almost like I can figure out what to prioritize just by looking at them. And I know this sounds probably a bit new age and like woohoo and stuff. And I don't even know how to explain it myself because when I was watching YouTube videos and podcasts about meditation, I figured it was just one of those trendy things that, you know, entrepreneurs were talking about, but it's something that I really credit to help me change my state, whether that's moving from an anxious state to a lot more calmer or setting the intention for the day. So now that I'm an entrepreneur, I just I can't go a day without spending at least 10 minutes just doing some meditation. And the app that I use, I use various actually, I use an app called Calm. Sometimes I go on YouTube and just pick a meditation video that kind of fits with my mood at the time. But in terms of uh, organization and morning routines, that's essentially how I start my day. I typically wake up quite early. And that's a relic of my time in Nigeria because I usually went to my dad would drop me off at school and he would drop me off at school at 7:30 in the morning. So I would wake up at five when he usually woke up to go to school. So it's something that served me very well. I'm definitely a morning person. So I wake up quite early. I woke up early when I worked in law. I still do. Then I do my meditations and then I also have enough time to like organize by writing notes and basically mapping out my day. So that's kind of my my little stress management hack.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. All right, Dells. at this point, are you ready to move in to the lightning round?
1: Oh, yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. The lightning round. All right. What is one book that has significantly influenced you over the years that you'd most recommend people check out?
1: This is one that lots of people probably know about. I'm looking at it right now on my desk and it's the Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. And the reason why I I recommend that for everyone is because even if you choose to be a full-time employee for the rest of your life, which is absolutely fine, it changes the way that you think about your career. And for me, it was very important because I don't know how I picked up this book. I'd never even heard about it. I just remember that I'd gone on holiday to to Nigeria for Christmas and somehow I ended up reading the book just before I started my full time big law role. And he talks about using your job as a way to invest in yourself and realizing that if you're thinking from like a scarcity mindset, or you think that a job is the only way for you to achieve certain things, then that's probably the wrong way of thinking. And I think it's a great book to read because it also emphasizes the fact that you can work a nine to five for the rest of your life, but you know, sometimes things don't go according to plan and it's very important for you to be prepared. So It's a book that I really, really enjoy because it shifted the way I thought about my career just as I was starting. And it's one that I refer to quite often.
0: Awesome! If you could have dinner with any one person currently alive today, someone you've never met, could be anybody in the world, who would you pick for just a one-on-one dinner and conversation with you?
1: I would love to have dinner with Rihanna. I find her so interesting and I would love to understand why she's decided to make the the moves that she's been doing over the past few years because she's like the perfect example of a career transitioner and someone who is multifaceted and not scared of actually exploring various things. So obviously we know her as like the musician, but look at what she's done for the world of beauty, for lingerie. And I would just love to pick her brains and just understand the thought process behind it, because it's been really, really inspiring to watch. And she's around my age as well. And also, I think one key question I'd like to ask her is whether she has any feeling of conflict between her identity as a musician and now as an entrepreneur, because imposter syndrome is real, even for the most successful people. And I'd love to understand how she deals with that.
0: I love that. That's awesome. All right, Dells. Of all the places that you have been in the world at this point in your life, what are your top three favorite travel destinations that you would most recommend people check out?
1: Well, number one is Brazil. I yes, love it that and Rio in particular because it just reminds me of Lagos: the chaos, the people, the energy, the good vibes. And obviously, as you know, because of the slave trade, there's so many people who can trace their heritage back to West Africa, Lagos in particular. And the part of Nigeria where I grew up, we had a lot of, you know, returned Portuguese slaves. So for me, the first time I went to Brazil, it was just, it was amazing. People were so nice. And Just also, it was the first place that I went that I met people who had never been to Nigeria but could speak my language. So that was like mind blowing. Wow. Yeah. Like last, I went to Rio Carnival last year and it was just the icing on the cake because one of the floats was celebrating the God of my surname, which is Ogun. And it was incredible, you know, to hear people singing in my language, like what. 17 hours away from where that language actually originated from was just absolutely like, I, I just can't explain how much I enjoyed it. So Brazil is definitely one of my number one destinations. I also really like uh, Cuba for pretty similar reasons as well. I love to dance. I love the energy of the people. And again, like no surprise. Number three is Colombia. Again, pretty much the same reasons. And um, Columbia was a massive learning experience for me because it was where I really dove into entrepreneurship and where I met the friend that introduced both of us, which is Katie. And also just being around people who've been through so much, who don't really have a lot, but are still very positive like positive and grateful and welcoming to tourists. They completely beat every single stereotype I had about Colombia. And, you know, they're throwing that out of the water and I really can't wait to go back. So I definitely recommend those top three countries.
0: That's amazing. And yes, by the way, big shout out to Katie for introducing us. She and I had a whole bunch of epic travel adventures together as well. We took the Trans-Siberian Railway across Russia from (laughs) Moscow into Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia on like a two week trip and uh, then went through the Gobi Desert on camels and all this kind of stuff in Mongolia. I mean, we had some wild travel adventures. And then when I was in Dubai later that year, she's like, you've got to meet Dells," And so she put us in touch and all that. So big shout out to Katie for that connect for sure.
1: Shout out to Katie.
0: (laughs) Yes. Shout out to Katie. But I totally agree with your picks. For me, I always tell people South America, Brazil is definitely my number one in Colombia is my number two right oh, after that. Great. Yeah, totally agreed with that. Great recommendations. All right, Dells, what are your top three bucket list destinations, places you've never been that are the highest on your list you most want to go?
1: Right. Well, Fiji is very up there. And I just like, I've I've always been fascinated by it. When I was younger, I'd watched so many documentaries on the Discovery Channel about it. So it's definitely high up there. It's just so far away from all of the countries that I've lived. So it's on the bucket list because one day I'm going to get there. The Maldives also is high up there because even though I lived four hours away, I just somehow never managed to go over because I don't know, for some reason it just never worked out. So it's pretty up there. And you might be surprised about that because these are all like stereotypically quite chilled out destinations just known for their nature and beauty. But sometimes bucket list destinations should be like that. Like I have this fantasy of just chilling out in a beautiful Maldives villa and watching one of those outdoor cinema type situations where the cinema is actually in the water. I don't know if you've seen any of those on Instagram, but they look Definitely. And then finally, Iceland is pretty up there and I was hoping to get there this year, but it's not worked out for obvious reasons, primarily so that I can navigate somewhere that I can see the northern lights. But Iceland interests me on the whole because there's just so many really cool places to see. Cuisine as well, so yeah, those are my top three places.
0: Awesome! All right, Dell's final lightning round question. I'm really excited for this one. This is this is my <laughs> highlight, I think, of, of maybe of the whole show because I'm going to take your answer immediately and put it uh, into practice. I have been trying to put my audience onto these Afro beats for a couple of years now, and I am super excited because I know you're a big fan, and I want you to name your top five favorite Afrobeat artists and whatever you say I'm about to go make my Spotify playlist right after this podcast so hit me
1: okay my number one is someone that if you've heard about him I'm going to be very surprised and impressed because he's not like the typical Afrobeats like top of the charts that you probably would have heard about. So it's King Sunny Ade. And my Nigerians are probably clapping right now because this is like one of our old school OGs. Like he's a legend and um, he's Afrobeats, yes. But I would probably say it's like father of Afrobeats. So the genre is called juju and like high life. And the reason why I love him is because, you know, I grew up listening to him. My parents listened to him. And every Christmas, my family would have big Christmas parties and we'd have all our friends and family around and everyone would be listening to like High Life and listening to King Sonia Day. And I would come out and like I said, I was very introverted and shy as a child, but because I love music I've come out and dance and you know in Nigerian culture if you dance you get money so one of my favorite memories is every Christmas just dancing to King Sonia Day and like people just giving me money and basically I'm just blowing up my budget on sweets so I Jeez. love Sonia Day
0: Okay, so when you talk about OG back in the day Afrobeats, when I was in Lagos, I went to the Fela Shrine.
1: The Shrine! My mom used to sneak to go there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So wait, so how does he compare with Fela in terms of like OG Afrobeat artists?
1: So I probably put them in the same like bracket. It's just the genre of music is is very different. If you listen to King's Sunny Ade, you realize that it's very different. It's more of like a Juju traditional Yoruba style, whereas okay. like Fela had a bit, some rock influences in there as well. So they're very different, but kind of like the same generation.
0: Same generation. Yeah. Got it. Okay. All right. That's number one. You got four more to go.
1: Okay. Well, number two was Fela. Really? <laughs> yeah,
0: definitely. definitely Are you serious? Fela. It was before I said that?
1: Yeah, it definitely is. 100%. Awesome. Yeah, I love Fela. So Fela is just like more like high life and King Sunny is more juju. Okay. So actually where my family lived in Lagos was, I think, about 20 minutes away from the Fela shrine. So we used to drive past it quite regularly. And actually his grandchildren went to my secondary school. So he's close to home, but I love his music. It's just, again, it's something that I grew up to. And even now I listen to a lot, especially with what's going on in Lagos right now in terms of the Nsars movement. So I don't know if you know, but actually fellas, I think it was his mother was actually killed by some of these corrupt um, police officers. So You know, he's been singing about politics and democracy for a very long time. And of course, the beats are fire. So he's up there in my top five.
0: Wow. Okay. so that's two. You got three more.
1: You will definitely know these guys. So Burner, of course. Burner boy. He's all over the charts at the moment. I think he's done a few of those collaborations with those Nigerian British artists that we talked about earlier. So Berner, if you haven't listened to him already, he is actually, I didn't do this deliberately, but Berner's biggest inspiration is Fella. (laughs) So if you watch any of Fella's videos in the 70s and and stuff and you look at Berner now, it's very clear to see the inspiration and Berner talks about him all the time. The other artist I really enjoy is WizKid because i love listening to afro beats in yoruba language which is where what my language my family speak yoruba so i speak yoruba as well but i'm not as fluent in it but i love listening to yoruba songs because it helps me practice the language. And also it just reminds me of home, you know, like my grandma didn't speak any English. So I I grew up speaking English to her until she passed away. So it's just like, it's a great way for like, for me to connect with my culture. And again, the beats are dope and they're fun. And there's a reason why they're trending. And I think Wizkid has done some collaborations with Beyonce. So I think he was on her latest album. And my final person is a woman. And this was like a cross between uh, Tiwa Savage, who's also a Yoruba Afrobeats singer, and Tenny. But I picked Tenny because Tenny is a bit more, she's not as popular as Tiwa Savage. And she, she's got a beautiful voice. And she sings primarily in Yoruba. But there's a lot of comedy in her songs, which I love because it reminds me of being in secondary school in Nigeria and all of the inside jokes and the stories and the gossips with your neighbors and stuff. So there's always all these stories behind her songs, which I find very entertaining. So that's
0: my top five. <laughs> Amazing. I love that. And we're going to link all of those up in the show notes. So folks can just go to one place at oneplaceatthemaverickshow.com. And we're going to have links to everything that we talked about, including those Afrobeat artists. So you can learn more about them, check them out, and definitely get them on your playlist. Dells, I want you at this point to let folks know how they can Find out more about you, watch your YouTube videos, follow you on social media, and definitely learn more about the Career Game Changer coaching program and your nine to five transition plan and all that good stuff if they're interested.
1: Thank you so much, Matt. It's been great just chatting and I appreciate the time that we spent so far. It's been really fun. In terms of where people can find me, we were joking at the start of the podcast about how (laughs) my name is a bit tricky to pronounce, but you know, yeah, you can get to it. It's Delzogun. You can find me at www.delzogun.com. And if you want something easier to spell, Career Game Changer is an easy find on YouTube. And we break down a whole bunch of different topics on there from, you know, how to transition your career to actually enjoying what it is that you do. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of ways for you to connect with me just by going through any one of those channels.
0: Yeah, your content is super substantive. So I definitely, if anybody is interested in these topics at all, I want to highly encourage them to go and check out your YouTube content as an entryway because it's it's really, really, really substantive content. So Dells, that's awesome. We are gonna link up all of that in the show notes as well, folks. So if you want to connect with Dells, we'll put her social media handles, YouTube channel, and link to her website in the show notes. It'll all be at one place at themaverickshow.com. Just go to the show notes for this episode. Del- This was amazing. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I had a really good time. Thanks, Matt.
0: All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at TheMaverickShow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at TheMaverickShow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you by cash flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at TheMaverickShow.com consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place. So you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber to get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals. Schedule your free phone consult today at TheMaverickShow.com forward